Well, good afternoon, Calvary Chapel South Bay. It's great to be with you guys. We've been with you since August and uh, really thankful to have the chance to co-labor with Pastor Jeff and be able to be here with you guys. Um, I'm from Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale uh, and had the chance to go back this past weekend. Um, And let me tell you, when I got off the plane and felt the humidity, I thanked God for Calvary Chapel South Bay. Amen. Uh, For over 27 years, I suffered purgatory at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and uh, grateful to be here with you. I must have sinned majorly as a child, uh, but uh, just so grateful to be able to be here and uh, serve the Lord, Lord alongside with you. Would you stand with me? We're going to be in two areas of scripture, Psalm chapter 84 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you'd like to turn your Bibles there. First, Psalm chapter 84, we're going to stand and I'm going to read as we honor God at his word. Psalm chapter 84, I'll start in verse 1. You know, as a pastor, you love to hear those pages turning. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful, Jesus, that you are not dead, that you rose from the grave, that you're the victorious king, and said, O death, where is your victory? O death, where's your sting? Lord, I can only imagine with even a hint of sarcasm, you would ask those questions, knowing that you would rise from the dead. We worship you. Lord, we worship the resurrected Lord, thankful for your resurrection power, and now ask that your spirit would speak to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have your seat. Keeping your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, without turning there in Matthew chapter 13, something begins to happen in the ministry of Jesus. He begins to talk to his disciples. He begins to explain to them principles about the heavenly kingdom, about the kingdom, well, that's on earth. And all of these stories, he begins to express heavenly principles with a spiritual truth attached to them that has a common kind of language. Seven stories, we've studied them here at Calvary Chapel South Bay, they're known as parables. Parables are something of a heavenly truth expressed through some kind of common language. But just a little bit later in the ministry of Jesus, around Luke chapter 17, he begins to change his tone. He's not saying any longer the kingdom of heaven is like, as he began each of those stories. No, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is within you. You see, now Jesus talking to his disciples, he wants to express his truth through the world, through his disciples. In fact, I can go so far as to say, you are a living parable. A living parable. You see, it's Romans chapter 6. Paul begins to explain it like this in verse 13. He says that we are tools of righteousness. Now just imagine, a handyman, he's got a nail, he needs to put it into a piece of wood. 
goes to his toolbox, and obviously he's going to find the hammer, the right tool that he wants to use to be able to accomplish the job that he needs to accomplish with that nail. In the same way, oh, you know the story. It's Ananias. It's in the book of Acts, and Ananias, he's called of God. Ananias, I want you to go and minister to a man by the name of Saul. Ananias, he says to God, "Um, I don't know if you know this or not, God, but Saul is here to kill me. And I think that I'm not going to go and be just a target on and say, hey, here I am. Why don't you get me now? And God says to Ananias, no, you're my tool. You need to go. What about Peter? Peter, just a little bit later in the book of Acts, all of a sudden he's in a trance, he's in some kind of vision, and he looks up into heaven, and pigs in a blanket, they start coming down from heaven. He doesn't know what this vision is until God says to him, I want you to go to Cornelius. I want you to go to the Gentiles' house and minister my gospel because Jesus said it best in John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You are his, listen, living parable. But this is not something that God started in the New Testament. No, it goes all the way back into the Old Testament. God using his tools of righteousness like Noah. Noah, he built an ark, a boat, for 120 years, showing the people of earth this is the way of salvation. As he was a preacher of righteousness, he built this ark, showing the world through his life that God was going to destroy the world. Or maybe it's Jeremiah. Now, this illustration could be PG-13, but stay with me if you would. God comes to Jeremiah, and he says to him, Listen, I want you to take your loincloth, and I'd like for you to go hide it under a rock. Now, let me express what he told him. He said to him, as if God would come to me today and say, Chet, get your fruit of the looms and put them under a rock by the river. Now, I wonder what Jeremiah was thinking. I wonder, wait, God would never ask me to get my fruit of the looms and put them under a rock. But Josh, Jeremiah, he listened to God. And he took those fruit of the looms, he put them under the rock, a week later goes back to get them, takes them out and looks at them and goes, wow, this is disgusting. And God goes, that's the point. Israel's sin looks just like this, Jeremiah. And now that you've known it, now that you've lived it, go tell them what their sin looks like to me, Jeremiah. What about Hosea? Oh, it's every Jewish's mother. A prayer and, and hope and opportunity that their son would be the son through whom the Messiah would come. And the wife was just so important. And imagine, God goes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I've got a thing for you. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Now imagine Hosea bringing Gomer home for the first time. Mom is all excited. Gomer comes walking in the door. <laughs> Hi, how you doing, Mom? Can you just imagine the moment? And not only that, Gomer, this prostitute wife would adulterate the marriage. So much so that Hosea would be asked of God to go and buy her back from her own slavery of the sex trade. And God and would use Hosea to go and buy her back because, listen, Hosea was God's living parable. He wanted to show the children of Israel, I'm a compassionate God. I'm a God filled with unconditional love. And Hosea, the only way that you're going to be able to express this kind of love is if you live it and as you show it. 
You see, Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians. Listen, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. You can write it down. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things were written for us as an example. We read these stories. We understand how to live and not live by watching the living parables that are found in the Word of God. And in the same way, church, let me tell you, people are reading the story as God writes your life. They're watching you. Whether you think it's true or not, listen, my wife and I were missionaries in Liberia, West Africa for years. We were church planters. And I can say by the grace of God, there are 17 Calvary chapels in Liberia, West Africa today for the glory of the Lord. But Liberia, while we lived there, was in the middle of war. And I want to describe to you what war is. Now listen, the one word that describes war is loss. Loss. You, you lose your family. You lose your life. You lose your friends. You lose your neighbors. In fact, you lose your neighborhood. You lose everything. You lose your job. You lose your retirement. You lose your home. You lose your school. And I was a teacher at a school. And we didn't want our kids to stop going to school, but we couldn't pay them because we were in the middle of war. We couldn't pay our teachers. And so we joined with another organization, and they gave us these 100-pound bags of rice and beans and oil, life sustenance kind of things. And we would pay our teachers with this rice if they agreed to continue going on with school, even though war was going on. Now listen, I was a teacher. Imagine AK-47s and M-16s going off as you're like background music as you're teaching. This was a reality for these kids and a reality for this country. Well, I'll never forget, one of the distributions was at my house, and we were giving out these 100-pound bags of rice, and everybody was so excited but me. You see, I had malaria. Now, I don't know if you know what malaria is, but malaria is the world's number one killer of human beings around the world. The number one killer is the disease malaria. And I was baking in my bed at about 104, 105. And I was sitting there just shaking like this with this incredibly high fever as they were distributing this rice. And everybody was so excited. And then all of a sudden, outside my window, I hear a woman. She's crying. She's whimpering outside of my window. And I listen to her, and God begins to knock on my heart. You see, she didn't have anyone to take her bag of rice to the road so that she could get in a taxi. Everyone had left so excited about their own food, they forgot this woman. And God knocks on my heart. Hey, Chet, I want you to get up and go carry this bag of rice for this woman. I said to God, if you wanted me to carry the bag of rice, you wouldn't have given me malaria. But you know God, he don't give up, does he? That's why he was able to say to Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? I've been trying, Saul, to get your attention for a long time. God does not relent. And I got up out of that bed because God wouldn't leave me alone. And I got up like my kids get up on Monday morning for school. All right, God, I'm going to go and do it. I walk outside there and I say, I'll carry your bag of rice. Oh, she started jumping and dancing. Praise God, African women, they are just so filled with life. And she started going, praise God, glory, Jesus, hallelujah. And she was just going crazy. And here I am with my bad attitude. Give me the rice, put it on my head. We're walking to the road and she's praising God and giving glory to Jesus. And I'm going, here it comes. We get to the road. I throw the bag of rice down. Thank you, brother Chet. Thank you, brother Chet. And I get back and walk to my room. 
I get on my bed and I look up at God and I go, you happy? You see, during that time, I also started a discipleship group. I know, with that kind of attitude. Listen, listen, if God can use me, he can use you too. Trust me, all right? Now, here's the deal. I started a discipleship group of 12 guys. But one of the guys, he said, I don't want to be a part. And I begged him. I'm like, dude, just come on, be a part of this. And he said, no, I don't want to be a part. And then one day, he shows up at the Bible study. And for the rest of the year, he chooses to be a part. So at the end of the year, I ask him, and I ask all of them, let's share what God has done through the course of this year in our hearts and in our lives. Well, he stands up and he says this. Listen. He goes, everyone, Brother Chet, he goes, I don't want to be a part of this group. But then one day, I was looking out my window, and I saw a white man carrying a bag of rice on his head for a black woman. I'd never seen a white man a missionary, do anything like that before. And I decided I want to know his Jesus. Let me tell you a secret. I didn't tell him about my bad attitude. You see, you're being watched whether you think you're being watched or not. God is writing your story. You are a living parable. Listen, Paul describes it like this. He says, you're a living letter. You're a living letter of Christ for everyone to read. Take a look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I asked you to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need as some others epistles or letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. Paul is writing this letter, a letter to this church. This is Paul who started this church. This is Paul who evangelized in Corinth. This is Paul who discipled these people. And he's saying, look, do I need a letter from you to talk to you? It's like this. You see in my book, Living Parable, Pastor Jeff, your pastor, he wrote a letter because none of you know me. So he wrote a letter in this book to say, look, he's a good guy. You can trust him. And that's what Paul is saying. You don't need a good guy, trust me letter kind of letter from anyone. I was the one that brought you to Christ. It's like this. This ministry, school, this Patmos School of Discipleship, we have seen over 330 students over the last 10 years go through this ministry. 85% of them are serving God around the world. Now listen. It's incredible to watch these young people get changed and transformed by the word of God. Now listen, when they graduate and I call them, I have sent them from Saudi Arabia to Thailand, from Philippines to the Haiti. And listen, when the earthquake happened in Haiti last year, or excuse me, several years ago, I called one of my students and I said, I'm putting you on a plane and you're going to be a pastor in Haiti. You're going to be there for a year, so just get ready to go. The next day he was on a plane. So all of my students, they know when they call, eat, sleep, and bathe because you have no idea where he's going to send you. 
The truth is, I don't need a letter from Pastor Jeff to call any of those students. All I need to do is call them because I saw them discipled. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. I don't need a letter, but there's one thing that I want to express to you. Look back at verse 3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. Now, I want you to circle that word clearly. Because that word clearly means without a shadow of a doubt. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Can that be said of us? What do people say when they read our letter? What do they see at work, at school, at home, at play? When they read your letter of Christ written and engraved on you, what do they read? What would they report is the letter of your life? Would they say that you are written on by the Spirit? That's what Paul says. Written on by the Spirit. Now, it's important that you see that we're written on by the Spirit because the Spirit, he's got a special kind of penmanship and it's only known by the Spirit of God. You see, I've got nine children and I have five grandchildren and one on the way. This is where you guys go, I don't look like I should have grandchildren, correct? Thank you. I love you guys. I knew I loved Calvary South Bay. Listen, and I know I've got six boys and I've got three girls. My boys, I know when I get a letter from them. I know their penmanship. I can't read the letter. It looks like chicken scratch. And I know when I get a letter from my girls, listen, it's bubbles and like, you know, big hearts and the lettering is just so perfect and the, and the handwriting is just so beautiful. And my sons, when they write, they go, dad, need 50 bucks. My daughters, listen, dad, you're the best dad in the whole wide world. I love you so much. And by the way, can I borrow $50? Who do you think gets the money? Listen, kids, I'm giving you a lesson. You've got to learn how to work at your handwriting. And what you say, it's all in the package. Trust me with parents. Understand, I know the difference of the handwriting in the same way you can know the difference of the Spirit's handwriting from that of the flesh. It's just distinct. It's just different. And I want to describe to you what this difference is. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go down now to verse 18. Go down to verse 18 and look what he says. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, the Holy Spirit has a job to do to make us look like Jesus. That's his penmanship. That's his signature. And I want to express something to you. Listen, Jesus is God and God is love. You see, when people read your letter, what they're going to read is a love letter. What they're going to read is an expression of love towards God, an expression of love towards others. My wife, to me, she just epitomizes this. Remember, I told you that while we were missionaries, we lived in the middle of a war. A war. Now, I described it as loss. And one thing that we lost were our clothes. We, would, we didn't even come home with suitcases. We didn't have clothes left. My wife would wash our clothes. She would hang our clothes on the line. And because everyone else had lost their clothes, as they were walking down the path next to our clothes, they would just grab a shirt, grab a skirt, and keep walking. Well, I will never forget. 
I'm teaching at church, and I'm sure I was teaching on the love of God. And a woman walks in and down the front aisle, the center aisle wearing my wife's skirt. She's wearing my wife's skirt. I was enraged. I could not believe she stole the skirt and came to church in it. I mean, how dumb can you be? So at the end of church, my wife, who's all of 100 pounds, she walks right up to the woman, and I'm like, you go get her, girl. Because let me tell you, my wife, she can't confront a cockroach. She, she can't even step on one without writing a letter home to the family. She's just that kind of precious. Like she can't say anything negative or bad about anyone. And I thought for sure this was her opportunity for growth. Go and tell that woman she's a thief. I stood behind her just to give her a little bit moral support. And I'm standing just like this. And she looks at the woman and she says to her, you know, I have a perfect blouse that'll match that skirt. What? Now let me tell you something. The woman followed her home. Andrea went in the closet, got the blouse, gave it to the woman, and she left with the blouse wearing the skirt. I'd had it. Called my wife into the room. You see, we were about to have some strong fellowship. You see, we Christians, we don't argue. We have strong fellowship. Yeah, it's just like we don't gossip, we share. We are never, ever, ever, ever worried. We're just concerned all the time. And you see, I called her in. We had this strong fellowship. And I look at her and I go, what were you thinking? That woman's a liar. What were you thinking? That woman, she needs to know the truth. She's a thief. My wife just smiled and she looked at me and she said, now what part of when they take your cloak, give them your tunic, don't you understand? Mm. There's one lady that claps. Listen. <laughs> you see, situation and circumstance didn't change what was written on my wife's heart. She's a love letter. And it didn't matter what she was going through. It didn't matter what was happening. You see, through the war, let me explain. Rebels abducted my wife and tried to take her away. By the grace of God, she was able to get out. Rebels came to our home and threatened to burn it down. This woman had been through a lot. But the truth of Scripture, listen carefully, the Spirit's penmanship was on my wife. It was written on her heart. Now, I have to describe to you what this word written is. It's very important because it's a permanent writing. You see, this is the word etched in your heart. It's carved in your heart. It's a permanent marker. It's ink that just simply cannot come out. No matter what you try to do it, no matter the circumstance that surrounds you, we have a responsibility for the Spirit to put this permanent mark of love on us. You see, not only does he put this permanent mark, he handwrites it. Handwrites it. There's nothing more beautiful than the intimate letter that comes that's handwritten. Just like the Spirit is intimate ministry with us, we go through all kinds of mail. We get little pink envelopes from the IRS. We get all kinds of mail. Do you remember all that mail you got in December that you had to throw away that you didn't even look at? But if you got a handwritten piece, oh, you look at that. That's the first thing you grab out of your box. You want to read it because you know it's something special. You know it's something dear. And my wife, my wife would write a letter that would change the rest of our lives. I don't want to tell you the story. I'm going to allow my son, my oldest son, to tell you the story 
about the young boy that she wrote this letter to. Would you watch this video? I was born in the jungle of Liberia, West Africa. And I, I remember one morning, um, my parents were getting ready to go to the farm. Um, and we heard about these rebels was gonna come, but we never knew when they were gonna come. We left my, my village and everything was okay. People was happy and my best friend, everybody were laughing and I just talked to them and then we came back. My whole village was on fire and my best friend, they just killed him and his hair got cut off and they set his hair in the road. While we're running for my life and never knew what was gonna happen, um, I got in the ambush with these rebels and they, they told me that I was part of their group. Um, wish I never have any dream ever, but here I was. And this boy, little um, seven years old, he got shot in his stomach and they forced me, they forced me to take this boy's body while he was bleeding. Here I was taking the boy's body and they told me I was a child soldier. I was nine years old. So they, they would recruit all these false D boys from their family to make them to be child soldiers, and then they give them AK-47, telling them they gotta go shoot people. And that was my life for almost a year and a half. I was feeling um, bad, um, seeing most of the thing that I saw, and shooting people being shot, and people had being cut off with machete, and you watching all the thing. I couldn't go to bed and sleep at night, because it was it was hard seeing things like that, even though I wanted to cry, but I couldn't cry, because if I do, I may, I may be weak. I couldn't show any emotion, because um, I might get killed. That's when I, I, I ran away. And I went to the refugee camp, where other people were living, what I knew I could be safe. I just came out of the ward and I never knew what was going on. And they told me there was a missionary and, and, and I went there and they reached out to me, they helped me and they, you know, take me to the hospital and then I got better. I never been into a missionary home before and that was my first time. They're showing their love f to me um, um, every day that make me lose up. And, and, and it was amazing to see something like that. Because they are, they are continuing love to me, and that make me to feel like, man, these people are real. And these same missionaries that I met are there now, they are my parents. Pastor Chad Andrea adopted me and brought me to the United States. And it's just amazing to be adopted in a family that will teach you how to live for Jesus. Now I work on a grand crew as a team leader. These are guys that came from different lifestyles and just encourage them and build them up. God gave me the opportunity to go to different places and tell teenagers about Jesus. Basically sharing my testimony to them and just telling them that God loved them and they don't have to go through life by themselves. What God did in my life was very amazing, giving me hope and a future and something to look forward to. I am a free man in Jesus Christ today.
he was caught in an ambush. And the little boy I'm speaking about was the one that led that ambush. He was nine years old. You see, this little boy, he captured him, forced him to fight, trained him. Nine years old. I met him when I was going behind the lines, and we so desperately wanted to rescue this child. But he loved his gun. Holding that AK-47 was everything to him. An RPG was like a play toy. Until one day he needed surgery. I picked him up off the road, took him immediately to the hospital. He had a surgery. When he woke up, my my wife, she wrote a handwritten letter. And this is what it said. Dear Emmanuel, We believe you're our son. Please come home. And we took Emmanuel home that day. And we've raised him over the last 20 years. These two enemies as brothers. Now, if you think you had family problems, you should have been in our house. And now, Emmanuel, every Thursday night, he's got a Bible study of 50 people like the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because of a handwritten letter. Now, let me tell you something. He called the other day. He's talking to his mom. You, you can't get wind between the two of them. They just so love each other and they giggle and Google and all of this stuff. And I got on the phone with them. I go, son, you're a big black man. You shouldn't sound like that with your mother. They're just so in love with each other because of one simple handwritten letter. And that's what God is doing with you. He's using all the situations and circumstances of your life to write out your story for other people to see. Now, let me explain. Life is hard. Jesus himself said, in fact, I can even say life is like war. Jesus himself said that in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Now, you're going to have to decide, am I going to get hard like a tablet and make it difficult for the spirit to work on because of all the things that have happened to me? Or am I going to choose to allow these things to mold and shape me? But you might say, Pastor Chet, wait a second. I am hard and I've gotten hard. You don't know what I've been through. Listen to what Peter says. He says, you're a living stone. Turn there quickly, if you would, with me. 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. Listen carefully. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. He says this. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood, to offer up a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. Come to him who was rejected by men. If anyone knows that life is hard, it's Jesus. He was rejected by his brothers, his family, and even his mother had a wavering moment there for a little bit in Mark's gospel. He was rejected by his own home. He was rejected by his nation. Jesus understands what it means to go through life, and it's hard. And he says, what I want you to do is come to me. I'm a living stone. Now, let me express what he's saying. Because some of you might think, I don't know if I can come to Jesus. You don't know. I've messed up pretty bad. So did Peter. Do you remember what Peter did? Peter denied Jesus, but he knew who to run to. When he heard that Jesus was alive and when Jesus was well, he went straight to the tomb because he knew that he could find forgiveness. He knew that he could find mercy. He knew that he could find his salvation. 
But Peter didn't come up with this illustration of a living stone. No, this is God. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. You see, God wanted to give the children of Israel water. And they're moaning and complaining and saying, man, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to get a leak. I can't believe they want to go back to Egypt and slavery for a vegetable. I mean, at least prime rib or something. But they're complaining about onions and vegetables. And they want to go back and they're thirsty and they're, they, they just want something to drink. And so God comes to Moses and says, Moses, what I want you to do, I want you to go to a rock and I want you to hit the rock with your staff. So Moses goes and he hits the rock and water comes out and they're able to drink. A little bit time later, the people of Israel again, they're thirsty. They're starting moaning and complaining. And God says to him, listen, Moses, I want to give them something to drink. But this time, don't strike the rock. I want you to speak to it. Because that rock represents Jesus Christ. And the first time he comes, they will strike him. But the second time he comes, he comes king of kings. He comes Lord of lords. Nobody will strike the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes the second time. But Moses, he's on his way to the rock. And he's listening to the people, life circumstances, and the people are moaning and complaining. The people are angry. Look at Moses. I can't believe he brought us out here. And Moses gets mad. And Moses goes up to the rock and says, you want water? And he takes his staff and he hits the rock. Water came out. But God said, Moses, come here. You're punished. You're not going to the promised land, Moses. Let me tell you why. I love these people. You misrepresented me. I'm not mad at them. I love them. I want them to have water. And you don't get it, Moses. This is an illustration of Jesus and how he's the king of kings, Moses. I'm not mad at these people. I love these people. I want to minister to these people. And I want people to know that when you come to me, I will fill you with living water. That's why Jesus says, for those of you who thirst, come to me and I'll give you water that you'll always be satisfied. You'll never want anything else again. The fact of the matter is we're all looking for an adventure, every single one of us. And that's why some of of us, we've gone to alcohol or we've gone to drugs or we found it in a gang or we found it in some ungodly measure because God has put in each one of us a desire for an adventure, but the enemy wants to pervert that. Jesus says, come to me and I've got the adventure of a lifetime. I've got an adventure that will satisfy you all of your days. Why don't we come? I'll tell you why. Because sometimes we're afraid. We're afraid because here's what happens. Jesus said it best. When you come to the stone, those of you that fall on the stone, you're going to be broken. And that broken process, none of us enjoy. That broken process, none of us want to go through. But all Jesus is doing, he is breaking us so that he can pick out the right pieces and begin to build a beautiful altar. Let me explain. My brother, four years ago, was an F-18 fighter pilot, a a blue angel. He flew over the Super Bowl, pilot of the year. Pastor Jeff knows well he was at my house when it happened. We got the phone call. Him and his co-pilot, their plane went down. My baby brother was gone. Three months later, my dad would literally die of a broken heart. He couldn't recover from his baby son dying the way that he did, giving his life for his country. 
and he would die of a broken heart. And watching my mom losing her baby child, losing her husband, my brother and my father, I know what it is to be broken. How, God, are you going to turn this around? These broken pieces. You see, all God was doing was getting rid of the things in my life that needed to get rid of. But at the time, I just couldn't understand. You want me to come to you? But it was just a few months ago. I was asked by the United States Marine Corps, because of my brother's death, to come and speak to the recruits. And out of 600 Marine recruits, 550 of them stood up to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Life is going to happen. Jesus says, come to me. You're a living stone. I am building you into an offering, into a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. Trust me, even though you're broken, I will get you through because I'm the living water and my passion for you is to be a living parable, a love letter to the world to express the goodness of who I am. My prayer for you, that you would be his living parable. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you now in Jesus' name that your spirit would move in this place and that you, God, would do the work that you've done in every service because you are stirring Calvary Chapel South Bay. And if you could, just for a moment, stay in an attitude of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said something very clear. He said this, I have come to light a fire. And he is a consuming fire. But some of us in here, our fire has gone dim. We've allowed the world sin. We've allowed some, maybe some darkening things to damper out our flame. When God wants to use you as his living parable, he wants to give you his greatest adventure. But you've you've maybe lost your first love. You see, you're all busy in the church. That's what he said to the church in Revelation. You, you, you look great. You're doing everything you should be. You're going to baptisms. You're being a part of all the outreaches. You look great, but there's one thing missing. You've, you've lost your first love because the most important thing to me is my relationship with you. I want to personally write on your heart. And you know that your lamp is dim. And you know if people at work or play or school or at home your husband or your wife, read your love letter. It doesn't look so loving. And today I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith. And just like all the other services where hundreds others have stood, I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith and stand and say, you know what, that's me, Pastor Chet. I need to relight my fire. My, my, My fire got dim. And I want Jesus to wake me up. That's what Paul says to the church. Wake up. We've got a job to do. People are reading our letter. What letter are they reading? And if that's you, amen, I want you to stand right now and say, Pastor, pray for me. I want my fire to be lit again. Amen. Amen. You stand. We're going to wait for you. Amen. 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 I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to just minister just a moment longer because I'm not going to drag it out, but listen, 
Some of you got too much pride to stand up. You're elder, you're deacon, and you're going, you know what? If I stand up, people will think, no, let me tell you, you will set an example of faith for someone who even would say, I need my fire to be lit. And if that's you, I'm just going to wait a moment. The Spirit's speaking to you. You know it's you. Your heart is pounding. You know I'm speaking straight to your heart. Just humbly stand and say, Lord, light my fire. Amen. Amen. I want to pray for you. Church, just reach out your hands. We're going to pray. And Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And I pray for those that have humbly taken a step of faith and said, relight my fire. Lord, we want resurrection power moving through us. No longer involved with civilian affairs. Forgive us for the sin that we've entangled ourselves with. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, we're coming to you. Fill us with living water. Thank you for not being mad at us. Rekindle our fire. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all said, amen.